0: It was a pleasure to be with you again this morning to worship and the opportunity to bring the word of the Lord to you. I'm pretty sure at this point you all know who I am, but just in case, my name is Michael Kidd. I'm an intern at Christ Church Conway under the session there and Reverend Kevin Hale, uh, finishing up my, my Bachelor's of Divinity through LAMP Seminary, uh, where my pastor Kevin serves as our, our educational facilitator there Um at Christ Church and hope to be done within the next year or so and ordained in our denomination. I am currently licensed to preach uh, through our presbytery and, and, and get an opportunity to do that pretty regularly over different churches in our region. So uh, it's a joy, is a privilege. Thank you for, for having me again this morning. Um, let's bring our attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word in Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. Moses writes: The Lord said to Moses, "See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan." And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons, for their service as priests. In the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Father, it is again today around your word that we come. Asking for your blessing on the reading of this word. Asking your blessing on now the preaching and the hearing of your word preached. I pray, Father, that I could be a mere mouthpiece for you. That I could speak the words accurately that you have inspired by your spirit here in this text. That I might rightly divide your word of truth. And that your people would be enabled and equipped and ready to hear it. That all of us would be enabled, readied, and equipped to apply it to our lives. That we might not let worship end here in this building, but we would walk out of these doors and continue lives of worship. To your holy righteous name. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. So, for some time, you folks have been working through this book of Exodus. I've had the privilege now of sharing a couple of other times with you uh, in, in the book of Exodus. And as we come to chapter 31, what's happening is we're reaching the end of another subsection within the book and kind of wrapping up. All that we've, we've read and heard so far regarding uh, the tabernacle, the outer court, and all of the utensils and the the instruments for worship that are within the tabernacle. So this is sort of a bookend passage that will ultimately culminate next week uh, as, as Reverend Brad is back to preach uh, on God's word regarding the Sabbath at the end of chapter 31. But today in verses 1 through 11, I hope that together we'll be able to see these things. That we'll be able to see in verses 1 through 2 and the first part of verse 6, the election of God. That we would see in verses 3 through 5, the Spirit of God. And that we would learn from the second part of verse 6 through verse 11, the vocation of God. And that we would we would culminate all of this in understanding how we are all to respond to these great truths. So let's work through this text together this morning. First, the election of God, verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I want to start off here by pointing out, uh, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri. A specific person called for a specific task to do a specific thing. I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri. God's election of individuals both in salvation and in the practical task to which they are appointed is dependent on his sovereign, holy will alone. God chose and God called Bezalel to this work. He didn't just happen to be there. It was no mere accident that he was present. It was no mere accident that he had the giftings and the talents that he had. This was indeed the sovereign and divine purpose of God, that this individual would be called to this Work. And rather than that causing us to feel useless, this should cause us to feel empowered. I know for a fact that in this church, both in the worship and in the preaching, that you are not left unaware of the reality of your own sin, of your own weaknesses, of your own failures, of your own unrighteousness. You see, were what we did in the work and worship of God dependent solely on who we were, and solely on what we could accomplish, and who just happened to be there in and of ourselves, then indeed we would have need to feel useless. Because what in and of ourselves can we do? But God calls men and women by name to accomplish His work, just as He does Bezalel here in this text. We're told specifically about this individual, that he is the son of Hur, now We've seen her before whenever the Israelites were battling the Amalekites. And I think I might have even shared this with you back from Exodus 24. Remember Moses was standing up on the mountain overseeing the battle. And as long as his arms were raised, the Israelites won. When his arms were lowered, the Israelites would begin to be defeated. And so Aaron and her were the ones who stood on either side of Moses propping up his arms that God might give Israel the victory. And so we at least know something about Bezalel. He's at least of some... Prominence And tradition even says that, that her married Miriam, Moses' sister, and so therefore her may very well be, or Bezalel may very well be, Moses' nephew. I say all this not just to give you empty facts, but that you would see that when we're, when we're talking about Bezalel here, we're talking about somebody of, of prominence, of importance. He, he mattered, and that's going to matter for us here just shortly Not only was he a prominent individual within the family of Moses, but he was of the tribe of Judah. Throughout the scriptures, the most prominent tribe of all of Israel. Uh, Judah was the most prominent tribe, and, and as it is, this is the tribe from whom the Christ would come. So we have a prominent individual of a prominent family from a prominent tribe called to do a prominent work in a very, very prominent Thing that is taking place in this building and development of God's place of worship. But if we skip to verse 6 and read the first part of it, it says, And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach. Now you all know who Ahisamach is, right? Neither do I. <laughs> and neither do most commentators. I'm sure we could find some tradition somewhere that tells us who he is, but nonetheless, we don't really know. We don't, as little as we're told about Bezalel, the son of Hur, we're told even less about Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach, And not only are we told even less about him, but Ohaliab was from the tribe of Dan. Dan was arguably probably the least prominent of all the tribes of Israel. Do you see the connection here? That in this great work of this development and of this building of God's place of worship where God had, was going to choose to come and dwell among his people, where God was going to provide a way for these sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked Israelites to come and worship him, he chooses one Bezalel, a man of prominence, of a prominent tribe from a prominent family, and one Ohaliab, a son of Ahissamach, somebody we have no idea who he is, who comes from arguably one of the least valued tribes of the Israelites. And it is these two who are to work together in the development and the construction and the building of God's tabernacle. Now, what does this this mean for us? Well, what it means for us is just this. That again, it's not about you that God's work matters and stands. It is not on you and you alone that God's work will develop and be done. It's not on your stance in, in society or in the community. It's not on any place of prominence or any place of a lack of prominence that you might hold that determines your value and your worth in the work and worship of this one triune God. And why is that? Because of the election of God. Because it is God who calls men and women by name to carry out his worship. It is God who chooses and ordains who those are who will come into his presence to worship him. It is him that specifically ordains who they are, when they will be, what they will do, how they will carry it out, and for what purpose it will be done. And ultimately we all know that all of the purpose for which it is done is for the glory of his great and holy name. This passage teaches us and should remind us of the election of God and what God calls us as his people to do. Now, as we move to verse 3, we begin to learn about a very important subject, one that is sadly oftentimes overlooked in Reformed churches, the Spirit of God. In verse 3, Moses writes, And I have filled him him being Bezalel, filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Bezalel was not only not selected purely because of his own gifts and talents, although those were obviously present, but he was empowered by the Spirit of God to carry out this Work. Plenty of men and women have talents and gifts and skills. Plenty of Christians have great talents and skills. And there are plenty of non-Christians that have great talents and skills. And, And all of those, both Christians and non, have these gifts and talents and skills that they can indeed use to work together for good. There's no question about that whatsoever. But apart from the empowerment, the anointing, and the application of the Spirit of God on that work, it is for naught. We hold to a doctrine here of of total depravity. We we don't hold to a doctrine of utter depravity, which is that everybody is as bad as they could be. But total depravity that all of us in every part and being of ourselves are indeed sinful and depraved. A question naturally arises out of that conversation of, well, can non-believers do good? Is there anything good that they can do? And certainly, yes, there is good that they can do in the sense of they can find, found hospitals and they can found schools and they can develop nonprofit organizations and they can feed and clothe and, and house the poor. They can do all of these good things and those things should certainly be called good and they should certainly receive the accolades that in this world those things deserve. But apart from the anointing power of the Spirit of God on those works... They are nothing. They are, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. They still only end in death. They still only end in destruction. But, but here what we have is this, these individuals that are being brought together to do this great work, and they're not to rely solely and only on their own power, solely and only on their own ability, but it, it tells us that they were anointed with God's Spirit. God says, I have filled him With the Spirit of God. And so from this Spirit and this gifting came ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship. All of these things that surround their their mind, what they knew, what they knew how to do. And all of these practical works were given that they might carry out this work. These giftings were specific towards artistic and structural design. It actually says artistic design to work in gold, silver, bronze, and cutting stone, carving wood. And in case they didn't cover it all, every craft. I never have been a great worker with my hands. I I just don't have the patience for it. But I have met some individuals in my life that can put together some beautiful work of wood, Beautiful work of metal, beautiful work of stone. My best friend growing up in high school was a bricklayer, and not just your regular old bricklayer like he could, you know, brick a house. I mean, this guy could do some designs and some structures and some artistic crafting with these just plain red bricks, but it was was beautiful. It was beautiful and it, it, it deserved a certain level of accolade. God empowers men and women by his spirit to come together to do his work in an artistic form. In a beautiful form. A form that even in and of itself deserves a certain level of accolade. Not that the people who do the work would be lifted up and worshipped, But that it would point to God, the one who deserves to be lifted up in worship. You see, the spirit of God by which God appoints and anoints these individuals to carry out his work, does so, not that they might receive glory and worth, but that God would receive glory and worth. How do you know that an individual is carrying out these good and beautiful works that they are doing for the glory of God? Well, because it naturally points you to worship the one true God. Martin Luther, supposedly, has a famous quote where he says that that the shoemaker... The Christian shoemaker doesn't glorify God in his makings of shoes by putting little crosses on each shoe, but that he does so by making the best shoes that he can possibly make, and that is done that God might be glorified. Now, in this spirit of God being, or that these these individuals being filled with the spirit of God to carry out all of these works, I want to point out a little biblical theology for you because this is not a one-off incident of God's empowering an individual to particular tasks for His purpose and glory. In fact, this is a shadow pointing us to the ultimate construction of the ultimate tabernacle. Remember back in Genesis chapter one that it says God made the heavens and the earth and the form was without the earth was without form or void and the spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep and we get this this image of a of a mother bird brooding over her nest is the spirit of God that God was working through and and using to to develop the creation to create the creation. And then we come here, and we see that it is the Spirit of God that is anointing these men that are doing this work to develop this tabernacle, this place where God would dwell with His people. We see if we move on into the Gospels that it was by the Spirit of God that the virgin birth would come about. We see also in the Gospels that it was the Spirit of God that empowered Christ in His earthly ministry. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that it was the spirit of God that was the the spirit of the power of the resurrection of Christ. And so you see this, this thread throughout the scriptures of the work that the spirit particularly is doing. And then finally when we get to Acts 2, we see that it is the spirit of God that rests like tongues of fire on the apostles as they preach the word of God in every tribe, tongue, and language that was under heaven that was present at the day of Pentecost. This isn't a one-off thing, and this isn't something for us to just just look at and go, Oh, that was cool. Bezalel had the Holy Spirit. That's neat. This shows us something, and this, this points to something, that the Spirit has always been and will always be at work in the lives of God's people. And so then, even after Acts 2, we come to passages such as Ephesians chapter 2, 11-22, where Paul says, Therefore, remember... And so just as Paul told the Corinthians that these things that were written down in the first five books of the Bible were, were written for our instruction. So we look at this passage today and we should, as New Covenant believers, hear those echoes of Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 2. And we should realize that what all of this is pointing to is the empowerment of the Spirit of God in all of the lives of all the people of God. That we might indeed be the people that God has ordained and elected to dwell in our midst that we would realize that as we worship here today around God's word and around God's sacrament, that God is indeed pleased by his spirit to meet with us here in our worship that when we come and we gather together here, that it is not just by some rote memory or some robotic tendency that we have that I have to wake up every Sunday at this time, wear these clothes, be at this place at this time, do these things, get out in time to get the, beat the Baptist to lunch, and then get home to take my Sunday afternoon nap just to do it all again next week. This isn't robotic rote memory worship, but this is indeed spirit-empowered preaching, spirit-empowered sacraments, spirit empowered worship that God has ordained for you in his holy scriptures all because of what Christ has done. Jesus told his apostles that it is good for me that I leave you because if I do not leave you, the helper, the Holy Spirit, cannot come. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father that he might carry out his role of mediator on your behalf, that the Spirit might come and carry out his role of helper within you. The same spirit that brooded over the waters at the beginning of creation. The same spirit that dwelt in Moses and in Aaron. The same spirit that dwelt in Bezalel and Ohaliab. The same spirit that dwelt in all of the prophets. The same spirit that brought about the virgin birth, that empowered Christ in his earthly ministry, that resurrected him from the dead. The same spirit that dwelt on the apostles in Pentecost. The same spirit that inspired this text is the same spirit that dwells in and empowers empowers you so your sin doesn't leave you hopeless and your sin doesn't leave you crippled and your sin doesn't leave you ruined not because you're not all of those things but because Christ in his grace has died for you resurrected on your behalf intercedes for you and his spirit dwells in you this text points us to so much more than just a couple of dudes who were going to build some really big tent for these you know, foreign people from long ago to do this weird stuff that we don't understand. All of this was written for our instruction and written that we might be pointed to Jesus Christ and reminded of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Matthew Henry said rather beautifully that when Christ sent his apostles to rear the gospel tabernacle, he poured out his Spirit upon them to enable them to speak with tongues the wonderful works of God, not to work upon metal, But to work upon men, so much more excellent were the gifts as the tabernacle to be pitched was a greater and more perfect tabernacle, as the apostle calls it. Now, having heard all of this, having been reminded of God's election, having been reminded of the empowerment of the Spirit of God in us, we have just a few things to remember about our own vocation. Because yes, indeed, what we do here is what the scriptures of old were pointing us towards. And indeed, I take back nothing that I just said regarding the worship of God's people on the Sabbath Sunday. But as I prayed for you in our prayer before we started, worship shouldn't just start and end here. Sure, in a a corporate sense, yes, this is when we come together to worship. But worship doesn't end when you walk out those doors. Worship continues when you walk out those doors. You carry out worship each and every single day as you wake up and take care of your families, your children, and your spouses. As you go to work and you do the job that God has ordained that you would do. And you do it to take care of your family and to provide for yourself, to put food on the table and a roof over people's heads and clothes on their back. As you carry out your vocation of friendship with those with whom you have relationships, whether in social settings or at your workplace or at home or at church or wherever, you're carrying out a vocation in those things that has been ordained by God, that you have been specifically placed in place to do and to carry out. And so when we get to what seems like just tedious repetition at the end of verse 6, let us remember particular vocations that we have been called to. And I have given to all able men ability. Let me read that again. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils. And the pure lampstand with all its utensils. And the altar of incense. And the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils. And the basin and its stand. And the finely worked garments. The holy garments for Aaron the priest. And the garments of his sons for their service as priests. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. God had a plan and a purpose for the tabernacle. He had a plan and a purpose for all the instruments of worship placed therein. He had a plan and a purpose for the men and women that would work together in the construction of this tabernacle. He had a plan and a purpose for the people that would benefit from this place of dwelling that God would come. He had a purpose for all of that, and He has a purpose for us. See, I know... Because I did it just this week that some days the alarm clock goes off, or it doesn't, and you wake up and you have to start your day and you get that just kind of sick, empty feeling in the pit of your gut where like you kind of feel like you might have to throw up, but you know you're not going to. And when you try to think about why, you're like, Cause I just don't want to do it today. I just don't have it. In me, remember this, that God has elected and chosen you, and God has empowered you by that spirit, and God has appointed you right where you are. As ministers, we get asked all the time, how do I know God's will for my life? And I always tell people, look around. What's happening? Because we serve a sovereign God who has decreed all things from the beginning of time. What's God's will for your life? What's in front of you right now? What's available to you right now? And it may be something that's seemingly so menial as making dinner for your family at the end of the day. It may be something so simple and menial as putting gas in your wife's car because she just can't seem to figure out how to work the gas nozzle. It may be something so simple and so menial as playing with your children or your grandchildren in the backyard. It may be something so simple and so menial as thinking simply, carefully about how you dress when you go to a particular place, whether it be for worship or for dinner or for a social gathering. It may be something so simple and so menial as being courteous to somebody in the line at the grocery store. Something so simple and so menial as being courteous to somebody who's trying to get over in busy traffic at the end of the day, but you know you got to get home, but you see that blinker and you think, do I let them over or do I keep going because I'm going to be late? Look around. What's God's will for your life? What's right in front of you to do now? And how do the scriptures propel you onward to do that properly for His glory? That's the answer to the question of what is God's will for my life? Whatever vocation you've been placed in, that's it. That's it. There's no writing on the walls. There's no mystical voice speaking in the background. It is God who has spoken in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and has left all of that for us in his holy scriptures. How can we carry out our vocation in that way? Paul has already told us in Ephesians 2.22 about how it is the Spirit of God that is working all of us together as a dwelling place for God. He goes on in Ephesians 4 to talk about how when Christ ascended, he, He gave gifts to men. He specifically mentions gifts of ministry that are given to men within the church to carry out the ministry of the Word, the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. And it is easy for us, going back to the menial tasks, to think, well, if I'm not the one getting in the pulpit and preaching, or if I'm not the one playing the guitar and singing, or I'm not the one leading the liturgy, then really, what is my role here? But Paul says something elsewhere about that very thing, First Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Your value and your worth in the kingdom of God is not dependent on who you are and what you bring to the table but it is dependent on the sovereign, holy, and gracious electing will of the one who has chose you. It is dependent on that spirit that dwells in you, that empowers you to carry out the work that God has given to you, all because of what Christ has done, all by grace, all through faith, and all for God's glory alone. Father, thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves, Thank you that you do not leave it all to depend on us and our own natural gifts and talents. But thank you, Father, that you saved us from our sin in the personal work of your Son, Jesus Christ. That you resurrected him from the dead. That you ascended him to the right hand of you where he intercedes for us and makes intercession on our behalf. That you sent your Spirit who dwells in us and empowers us to worship you rightly pray, Father, that we would continue to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth, that all that we do, say, pray, sing, work, dress, eat, and drink, and drive, and whatever else would rightly exalt the name of Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.